0: Detroit is different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at Detroitisdifferent.com today. Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast inside the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And today I have somebody that's definitely doing some work in the community, doing some work in the city, doing what many people talk about, but this brother is like us, for us, representing for us, representing for community, connecting a lot of different things. His story is dynamic, unique, and I didn't even want to blow the load because I just know bits and pieces. <laughs> Chase Cantrell, how you feeling today, my brother?
1: What up, though? I'm feeling good.
0: Everything's cool. Everything's cool. So we're going to start this like we start a usual Detroit is different. <laughs> your Detroit story, what brought your family to Detroit City?
1: so my parents came to Detroit in 1968 okay. and I didn't understand this until I was an adult when I when I began to realize wait a minute this is a year after the rebellion mm-hmm. um, all my family's from Ohio so right. like like Mansfield Ohio around okay. there yeah the farmland around Mansfield Ohio mm-hmm. um, and I just uh, I didn't, I didn't understand. I'm just like, wait a minute. So the story that I've been told, you know, is, you know, Detroit aflame, right. In 1967, what brings, they were in their early twenties, like what brings early 20 somethings from Ohio up to Detroit, but there was still a lot of economic opportunity. Like both of my parents in their early twenties, young black folk got good jobs, Mm -hmm. um, in downtown Detroit. Mm -hmm. And they were like, Detroit was still bustling. Like the, the 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 area where the rebellion happened was pretty small like that didn't seem to affect the rest of the city at, at that point mm-hmm. so my you know my dad was working downtown then on the boulevard um my mom was working for a bank like they came up for opportunity so like that's not the story a lot of us get about Detroit but that's what brought my family here
0: okay and being that they came in the late 60s close to 70 that is very unique mm-hmm. because so many families were already you know made the I guess migration, but in the grand scheme of things, it had been like two. So, oh, that Ohio community, right. um, do you, I'm guessing, are your family still, do you still have family roots there? Oh, yeah. Like my, my parents,
1: my parents were the only ones who left. So, all of my aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, all in Ohio. So, okay. Down
0: 75. Yep. (laughs) Okay. What, uh, when you say more opportunity, Mm -hmm. what was different? Do you think about your mother and father that made them want to make the leap and come to Detroit as opposed to stay in the hometown with their family?
1: So I think part of it was the military. So my dad was in the army. Um, I think, you know, he was based in St. Louis, Hmm. um living in east st louis and they you know have great stories from that period but i, I my understanding was there was a job there you know after the army that then led him, my, my father to detroit so um there was an opportunity like he uh worked in retail at that time and he got a management position which for a young black man was was pretty rare so came to detroit got a chance to um managed rather large stores, again, like he's probably 22, 23, um, and just, you know, moved up the chain from there. So it really, it really was that economic opportunity.
0: So y- y- you spoke also to him being in the military, mm-hmm. Army, Army, late 60s, puts him spot, you know, right in the mix of Vietnam, Vietnam's yeah. conflict, did yeah. you serve?
1: He, so... I mean, he was serving in the army, but he didn't get deployed overseas. So he was he was stationed on the U.S. side, mm-hmm. um, which I think was lucky for me, actually, lucky for my family in general, because I know I have uncles who went over, um, and you know, as many of us see in our families, like there were real impacts to people who uh, who served in that war overseas. Like, mm-hmm. folks came back different. Um, so i i'm pretty thankful for the experience that he got and mm-hmm. and that he got to stay pretty close to home so
0: that's cool yeah. that's cool and then you said your mom worked in worked at a bank in
1: yeah Park so Boulevard. yeah so my mom ended up working what well, at the time was nbd mm-hmm. um nbd became like bank first chicago bank. nbd then bank one mm-hmm. then jp market chase so she went through all those iterations she worked there for like 35 years wow so yeah
0: wow so yeah. And, and we remember National Bank of Detroit mm-hmm. um, and and just being in that in that space. So finance has been something you've seen or had at least some, yeah, some perspective. Of. A,
1: a little bit. Um, I don't know that my mom talked that much about it growing up, mm-hmm. but yes, a, a bank was not an odd place for me. Right. Like even in sixth grade, NBD came into my school, into my middle school, and they set up like savings accounts for kids. So I got to be one of the, I guess like loan officers, like one of the kid loan officers mm-hmm. to to help set up accounts. So like to me, finance wasn't a weird thing. Okay. Yeah.
0: They was like, yo, man, I need some money for some Jordans.
1: But it's like, <laughs> no, that is not a sound. It's investment. not the way you do it. But it's like, no, these are the sevens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody writing writing
0: uh, Chase as a kid, like, if I would have had the J's, then Stock X. Listen, right, right. Now nice <laughs> it's an investment. It would have been, I would have $30,000. Thank you, Chicks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, fourth grade logo. There we go. <laughs>
1: like,
0: this is an investment, mama. <laughs> so, so I'm joking, but for, for my older audience right now, shoes have become somewhat of an investment Mm -hmm. sneakers um so in this same space um neighborhood what was the neighborhood
1: yes i grew up at puritan and greenfield um which in the 80s i guess a lot of detroit was was kind of rough but like you know it it was it was a fairly middle income neighborhood Mm -hmm. um and when i look at it now compared to other neighborhoods it's still intact Right. There wasn't a whole lot of demolition. There's, there's not a whole lot of vacancy in the neighborhood still. Um, but, you know, I remember like recently a friend of mine who black guy from Ypsilanti recently moved to Detroit with his with his wife. He has kids now. And he mentioned to me he's like his, his young son, who's like two or three, is reacting to gunshots at night, hmm. like in the neighborhood. And my first impulse, and I feel terrible that this was my first impulse, he he asked me, was this normal? And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's normal, right? That's that's Detroit. Um, And and it makes me realize, like, yeah, that was my youth, right? There's a lot of us growing up, like, still to this day. uh, But that's the kind of neighborhood it was, right? Like, I lived right in front of a park, like, the kind of stuff that happened in that park at night, you know? Um, So... I was pretty sheltered. So again, thanking my parents for this. Like I didn't know all this stuff that was happening in my neighborhood as a kid, mm-hmm. but looking back on, you know, my parents would only let me ride my bike within, you know, a certain I, distance, a certain distance mm-hmm. you know, couldn't just be in anybody's house. Couldn't go to the park unaccompanied as a kid. I'm just like, man, like this is messed up. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, I'm like, yes, this all makes sense now.
0: <laughs> and that's, that's when I think of, those cross streets, I immediately think of Cooley High School.
1: Yeah, I my brother of, went to Cooley.
0: I think of Justin's Records. I mm-hmm. think of, um, here we, it's completely different now. Red Devil Inn. Red, Red Devil, Pizza, yeah, yep. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, cool. These are like some of the things that just come to mind when I think of that community. Mm-hmm. And I had an aunt that lived like off Marlow in that yep. neighborhood, basically, like kind of down the street from. Cooley, and, mm-hmm. you know Tyrone Whe- the Wheatley family being in sort of that neighborhood and and what that is, um, so it's a it's a uh, what's what's the, the even the middle school Servini,
1: um Yeah, the Serventy and Quarry. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, what, what's was was interesting. And I think this is a is a Detroit story for a lot of people. I mean, Serventy doesn't exist anymore. No. Cooley doesn't exist anymore. No. And Crary, I think, is like an adult education facility, but it certainly isn't like a school for children. So, like, these mm-hmm. schools, I mean, the facilities still exist, but, like, the history and our histories mm-hmm. almost feel like they're erased. Like, these institutions are no longer there. My sister went to Redford a little further up, but, I mean, they tore that down to create a mire. So just, like, all of all of our history of growing up, it's just, yeah, they're just memories now.
0: And, and being... In that, and you said yes. It definitely was some working class folks,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it was definitely still some, as we say, like it, it was still some street element yep. there as well. Mm-hmm. But as you said, the way that your 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 parents, you know, made sure you were safe, yep, um, and still were able to raise you up, raise a family, mm-hmm. period. Uh, well, what do you when you think of that time in that neighborhood just being a kid uh what what stands out what are some of the things that come to mind for you
1: i mean there was there were other kids on the block Mm -hmm. so i mean just the the community of children that existed uh where i grew up um i mean my brother used to play basketball and so my my siblings are older like my sister's eight years older my brother's 12 years older but like my brother would be at the park playing basketball all the time. There was a basketball rim there. <laughs> there no longer is. Like the the playground looks nicer than when I was growing up, but you no longer can play basketball in the park. Yeah. Um so I don't know, as a kid, it just felt like a it felt like a normal Detroit childhood, right? Just running up and down the street, bicycling. Like again, I couldn't go to the park unaccompanied, but I would go with my brother, mm-hmm. right? So um no, it was just a Felt pretty carefree, structured, right? But still pretty carefree.
0: Okay. And, and you speak of carefree, structured, and that's one of those like pillar, what I think of Westside communities. Because mm-hmm. I remember my aunt, my aunt was a nurse, an RN mm-hmm. at Providence. So she, you know, usually, you know, that's not that far away. Right. Um, but even next door were like plant workers and then like across the street were uh, people that worked like, you know, in kitchens and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It was definitely more of a working class community, I remember, through the 80s yep. to w- of what I remember. And definitely through certain points to the 90s, maybe around like 98, 97, when my aunt was considering moving. She mm-hmm. made a move in like 2001. Mm-hmm. Things were shifting. Yep. Like y- y- you clearly saw from that block families that were there for like generations. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing about over there. It was like those people seemed like they were there for like eons mm-hmm. and things shifted.
1: Um, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just that neighborhood. That it, it, mm-hmm. that That is a good s- symbolic neighborhood for what happened. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we talk about white flight a lot, right? Mm-hmm. 1950s automotive plants start to shift to the suburbs. White people follow for a lot of different reasons, including mm-hmm. racism. Um, but Black Flight started in the 1990s, right? Like, if you had resources, I mean, this is why, like, I, I jokingly used to say that Southfield was like Detroit North, but, like, people would move to Southfield and now further out to Farmington and Bloomfield, et cetera. Like, if you have resources, you're moving. Um, and that was that was the 1990s, the mid-90s. And I, and I remember my parents looking for new homes in the suburbs, mm-hmm. Um they never moved. Like, they've been in Detroit all my life. But I do remember that they were, that they had begun, to, they were considering yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, because a lot of parents were.
0: And, and it did become that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Oak Park, Southfield. Yep. Uh, Lathrop Village. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, Farmington. I mean, right now, people, you know, I got homies in, like, Novi. Mm-hmm. You know, Levon, like places where it's just like as a black person, it's like, hey, more power to you for that journey.
1: Well, but, for me, you know. I mean, there's we've lost we've lost the black middle class, most of the black middle class in Detroit. Um, and if you if you want to have a strong black city, you have to have a middle class. You have to have a strong middle class. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's that liberty for black people to move like people like you're saying, people feel comfortable in other communities. But what does that mean for the black city? What does that mean for Detroit? And I think that it has a real impact on what we can actually build and what we have power over. If we don't have, honestly, we don't have the resources, the capital of those people who, in quotation marks, have succeeded, right? And success shouldn't be leaving the city. But I think a lot of us, hell, like I grew up hearing and understanding that once you succeed, you have to leave.
0: Yeah. The, the whole concept of leaving the hood. Yeah. And, and that's what I want to do mm-hmm. as a pillar of success is is key. Yep. And, and being in a neighborhood like this similar. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. Like the the whole concept, I don't think I've ever coined it as black flight. But what you're saying is definitely real. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of those uh, attributes of success, what it would be looked at looked like was definitely leaving Detroit and heading to uh, a suburb which I believe for black folks comes with its own set of
1: there are problems there too exactly mm-hmm.
0: a different set of challenges Yes. you know what I'm saying so now you know y- y- it-, it shifts mm-hmm. so in that shift as you were looking at that did, did you see many of your friends that you grew up with leave the neighborhood y- your block on your block
1: Actually, yes. I guess I haven't really thought that much about it. But, yeah, when I was in my pre-teens, a lot of folks began to move to Southfield and Oak Park, et cetera. Yeah.
0: So, and then in this, and and, and I'm hinting towards and going towards something, Mm -hmm. um, we see what was in my mind, like, not even my mind, just in America, one of the largest blocks of home ownership. Mm Mm-hmm. Of Detroit, a black homeowners. black homeowners. yeah. Transition to today, where you have almost like a full renter class of like you, you know of, of of black folks mm-hmm. in this black city. So it it because it was so commonplace in the eighties to own a home if you were black in Detroit.
1: It was, and and part of it. So to go back to the seventies for a second, like when my parents first got here, so. 1970, 1970 or 71 um my parents bought a house mm. but they were able to go to Standard Federal which eventually became like LaSalle Bank and Bank of America they went to St- Standard Federal and they got a mortgage mm-hmm. right for a $21,000 house which is probably in today's dollars like 100k mm-hmm. but young black in their 20s <laughs> gainfully employed right but like 20-somethings able to go into a bank and get a mortgage we are unable to do that today in and the I, same ways
0: i, I want to unpack that big time mm-hmm. and, and, and we're gonna i'm gonna put like a pin in that sure and then we're gonna go to more <laughs> of just your detroit story yeah. school for you where where were you going to school
1: yeah so query mm-hmm. um did a short stint in catholic school for middle school so okay. saint scholastica still close to the neighborhood right mm-hmm. um Got a scholarship to Benny, Benedictine, for my ninth grade year, which was not as good as St. Scholastica. Um, so when it came time, when that scholarship was up, my parents were like, nah, we're going to a public magnet. So I took the test, got placed a cast, <laughs> which is like on the other side of the city. And we're like, nah, like Renaissance is right there. It's a mile away from my house. So my parents went up to Renaissance and we talked to the principal like, I'm going here. So it and, worked. Yeah.
0: Okay, and <laughs> were you at the new or old I was at the
1: old Renaissance. So the
0: old Renaissance had a different feel, and I yeah. know my Phoenix that are watching are like, you know, it was very um it was very familiar. Like yeah. almost like like a you know, everybody felt a part of something
1: everybody knew everybody i mean it was a small it was a small school Mm -hmm. right like 700 give or take students so everybody knew everybody like the teachers knew the students like very very well um parents were really involved like it was a different it was a different feel completely
0: what did you uh what did you think of your experience there at renaissance
1: it was um it was a little weird because i came in in 10th grade right so i transferred from benny but um so in a way i had to like you know how all of those uh how, how this how the social norms sort of form in ninth grade mm-hmm. so i had to find my place once i got there in 10th but um no once once i got into the groove of it and found that friend circle um no everything everything turned out really well like i enjoyed my teachers i enjoyed um it was a, it was a rig- rigorous curriculum it prepared me for for u of m later so no it was it was a good experience
0: so it was like um, you went in 10th grade, like you started at this lunch table, like, eh, I ain't really cool with them. <laughs> then you went to that lunch table, like, eh, they kind of cool. And then you was like, okay, this is where I'm at. It
1: okay. actually was <laughs> the, the the folks who wanted to hang out in certain teachers' rooms during lunch. So not okay. even going to the lunch room. It's like, no, nah, we're going to Mr. Sanchez's room. Like, uh-huh. it was it was that clip. So Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, so
0: like even a step above. Like, it, so it's like, Mr. Sanchez, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to trade you this chocolate milk. Could you please give me some of your lunch? Option? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then from that journey on to U of M, which mm. is unique because it's just like, I don't know what started this relationship between so many Renaissance students going to U of M and so many Cast Tech students going to MSU. It's just
1: I well, mean, it, well, it part of sense, it. But it, it was the recruitment connection. It was the recruitment. I mean we it almost felt like there were no options Hmm. like you knew Hmm. that you were expected to go to U of M or MSU Mm -hmm. right and I I only applied to those two schools and then one out of state school but like the recruiters recruiting hard like U of M was coming in all the time MSU was coming in um I did a preview weekend at state and I mean between the two it just I got into both and I don't know I guess Michigan went out but like you You knew going in that 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 was the expectation, and there was usually some scholarship dollars attached so
0: now m- me me knowing like we're close in age, though so I got you by a couple. <laughs> that puts you in space at U of M at a time when we have so much about affirmative action stirring up Mm -hmm. so much on that campus. And and this is one of those things where I, and and you're, you're a Wolverine here. I'm talking to you as a Wolverine and I'm talking to you Wolverines that are right now. Like it wasn't us. It was the Republicans. (laughs) And it's so unique about that institution. Mm -hmm. Cause, um, I remember I did a Ted talk at U of M, um, for a group and as I was giving my TED talk about like progressive thought and progressive theory this may have been in 2016 okay um, as I was giving my TED talk um, Richard Spencer was speaking or no not, not Richard Spencer Sean Spencer uh, was speaking like down the mm. hall I'm like you realize that This institution, and it's a unique place because it's like Mm -hmm. some of the most leading ideas and I guess, like liberal progressivism come from U of M, but also still some of the most leading conservative Republican doctrine come in that institution as well.
1: Free speech is important.
0: (laughs) It's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, Gerald Ford. It's a it's a reason, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. anchor in like in in, in these thought processes. Um, it, it's like you know, y'all can kind of walk across the hall and maybe even have a discussion between like each other and, well, and hash out some of this stuff.
1: Well, what's interesting? I mean, so I went to the law school as well, so that was my grad grad degree, and the Federalist Society is there, mm-hmm. um, and just, I mean. As you said, you could go across the hall and hear what other people are thinking um, yes. and sort of sit in your own discomfort. <laughs> um, but it was, it, it, yeah, Michigan attracts all, all types. But on the affirmative action piece, um, 2006, um, Michigan passed Prop 2, yeah. right? Like outlawing race considerations in, at, in university admissions and a lot of other things. But I was approached by the ACLU as a student. And they just wanted to know if I would be a plaintiff in the case to sue to to keep race based admissions at U of M. Um, I said yes. They heard my backstory. So all the Renaissance, all the all the everything I just I just said. And they were like, would you become the lead plaintiff? So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. So if, if people want to Google Cantrell v. Home, like it was, it started there.
0: Wow. I, I See the <laughs> stuff you learned. I just, I'm just timing out thinking this, yeah. that you be in that mix. Yeah, totally. But wow. But it was
1: random. Like it was, there was an email that went out to law students. I think it was to the black law students Alliance to BALSA looking for volunteers to be a part of the case. I responded, met at a coffee shop, <laughs> uh, with with one of the ACLU reps, and yeah, it just went from there. So Now, now
0: I really want to open this up, because as much as I'm speaking to U of M, and then also, as a Fab Five fan, I always thought U of M <laughs> came down hard on them, too, so it's just like, ah, uh, stick it to them. Uh, I'm a Walsh guy, but people know if it's State or Michigan. I'm To me, it's, the, it's two sides of the same coin in the grand scheme of things, but Prop 2 was tough for me, mm-hmm. because um, you know, baby sister from a U of M grad, uh, a lot of people I know that went to U of M. And it was like for them to move forward on this Prop 2 thing. But then you walk that damn Ann Arbor campus. And it's like yeah. if you if you could get ten dollars for every black person you saw or or just non-white person you saw, mm-hmm. you know, especially in 2006, seven. You may you may walk away with like a one hundred dollars. You know it. what I'm saying? <laughs> Now nah, Michigan State, you 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 may end up with like about five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Eastern Michigan, you you you'd hit the uh, <laughs> you'd hit the cha-ching. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's what was so disturbing about that because I'm like, nothing has been right set by this. Mm-hmm. Why is why is this institution taking so much of a of an action on this prop two? thing when you clearly don't see diversity in this institution
1: well i mean the u of m itself didn't want prop 2 to happen Mm -hmm. right like they were trying u of m has tried everything in the book to try to be able to admit non-white students Mm -hmm. and every time they try something they get sued (laughs) um and prop 2 was just like the nail in the coffin because admissions for black students plummeted the next year and we have not regained you know, where we were. So, I mean, it's been it's been tough ever since for over a decade now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's not for lack of trying by the admissions offices, by the administration itself. Like they they want black students. Um, but. Yeah, like every like you said, there's still a very strong conservative bent among students, amongst some faculty. And yeah, it leads to lawsuits every time.
0: And it's so unique, too, as you speak about that, because, uh, you know, I grow older and now I get more white homies. And then I hear the stories about, you know, my sister's had a 4.0 her whole life. And I heard it's like a guy from, you know, a city in Detroit that had like from Detroit that had a 2.5 and, you know, a a felony. And and he's getting in. And I'm like, is this real? You know what I'm saying? Like, is this this real? Like mm -hmm. and, and then furthermore, you know. I I, I used to think that way, but now I'm going to even lean in and say, okay, let's say that is real as your white sister with a 4.0, her whole life already has so many other Mm -hmm. societal advantages, you know, white privilege (laughs) that if disconsideration in this institution and and nobody ever walked on U of M's campus and felt as though it you know you were walking in the Deaf Comedy Gym. So it's like <laughs> I don't know if his his or her the 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 black student is quote unquote taking away this scarce resource though I know admissions is a certain amount and everything. It's it's a multitude of other opportunities for the white student.
1: well not well not only that um, one those those kinds of anecdotal stories mm-hmm. are not are not the norm right um, but what people fail to realize is that you get points like there's a point there's a point system on the application right like you get points for if your family members are alum you get points if your family members have donated significantly to the to the institution you get points for art for music, for other like extracurricular activities. There's all these other things you get points points for. No one complains about those, right? It's not, that same person with the 4.0 whose dad probably went to Michigan, which is why they want to go to Michigan. They get points for that. Let's remove those too. Let's see let, let, let's see how people begin to fare once you take away some of these other privileges that people get. Mm-hmm. Um so race race as a consideration. Um one it makes it makes the classes more robust. It actually makes the learning better. So I teach at U of M now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I taught my first semester uh, in the winter, and when I look at what a majority white class is a fifteen student seminar, um, what the non white students were able to bring in terms of perspective and life experience and commentary, it just it makes the discussion and the learning more robust. So the people who are who are like. Yeah, we we essentially won an all-white institution. You are limiting the learning that happens in that space.
0: I, and you you definitely just gave a heck of an argument. Like I'm I'm also as a Wash College graduate, mm-hmm. extremely conservative and Republican, <laughs> doctoring and thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but love the business school. My dad went there as in that same like legacy thing. Yep. Um. But it it's and I'm sure definitely my theories, I, I had many professors backpedaling and back and forth with all my ideas. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, during the whole idea of, uh, the home healthcare act and Obamacare, me and a couple professors were like every day. Like I, I was, I was looking at, you know, the, the New York times and, uh, the wall street journal just to have talking points of like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? um, I think that can enrich that experience Mm -hmm. the same press prospect and work sometimes it's like you know give the give that perspective but let's go a little deeper into that whole that the diversity and background and thought Mm -hmm. opens up a discussion differently as that discussion opens up how you know um how do you feel that enriches all the other students in there because maybe I'm a student in there just thinking I want to go here get a piece of paper so I can get a job how is that now opening up their mind a little bit more so that they're more prepared from their college experience
1: well well, part of it is just understanding how the world works right like if you've only seen if you've only been in a group of people with a similar perspective right now you have other people from other places that don't look like you um, the benefit of diversity Um, telling you about their own life experiences, their own view of healthcare access, right? Like everybody else may have experienced where, yeah, I've been on my parents' healthcare and that's just how healthcare works in in the United States. Well, what if your parent's job doesn't provide that? Like, what what does healthcare access then mean? Having that conversation in a political science course, in a social work course, um, in a medical school course, like that changes the way that the other students who have experienced privilege most of their life, understand how the world works and begins to allow them to posit differently on how you create solutions for the rest of us, essentially. Um, It also takes a really astute faculty member to be able to facilitate the conversation well. So on the one hand, you need diverse students, but you also need diverse faculty to be able to understand the value that Akari brings to the conversation, being able to say, this is why we do or do not need this policy based on your life experiences, based on what you've seen in your community and your city, et cetera. I need to be able as a faculty member to be able to value that. And in fact, shift the conversation based on what you've said. Um, So that's what I try to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like it, it, it absolutely opens people up to new ways of thinking about the world.
0: So as we're thinking of these new ways of approaching the world, Mm -hmm. let's, Let's get more in in your journey from school. So, sure. law school. Mm-hmm. Well, bachelor's in law, and and hats off to, you know, just you know the going through the tests, the loans, <laughs> laws. Man, the law is interesting, as yeah. uh, as the great uh, Ty Russell Perkins, love Attorney Perkins says. It's like a strange bird, <laughs> you know, because it's it's. It's based on precedent. It's based on fact. It's based on statute. It's based on law, but it also has a whole lot to do with the makeup of the courtroom, mm-hmm. makeup of the judge. If it's a if it is a jury trial, makeup of the jury. Mm-hmm. Even to me, I'm big in um, I'm big in um the layouts and in in how things are set up. Like court, to me as a black man for many reasons it's even disorienting like just walking in approaching the bench knowing how to talk to to the judge sitting you know walking into this room at like 8.30 you know what I'm saying yeah. being let in by the the bailiff mm-hmm. <laughs> sitting down probably for like two and a half hours the judge walking in you know taking a piece of paper doing this it's a, tra- it's a strange world you. yeah and then turning around, talking a little bit to the bailiff, walking back out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, damn, can I ask the bailiff? Like, yo, man, um, should I put some more money on my meter? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's the design of it mm-hmm. alone is very it's different.
1: Yeah.
0: And and I'm saying that as a black man, I think for most Americans.
1: But, but think about it. So most lawyers are white. Most lawyers are white men still. Yes. Like there's more diversity than 30 years ago, but still the majority is white men. The majority of judges are white men. Yes. The majority of legislatures, state legislatures are white men. The majority of our Senate in house are white men. Mm-hmm. So just the structure of law <laughs> is, is not, it has not been designed by us.
0: And then even the, the stenographers, sometimes mm-hmm. usually a white woman, yep. bailiffs, more times a white man. Um, you know the the clerks in to get there you're probably you may have a black staff but the management is that's white men as well court court
1: administration all yeah so this this there's a reason that it feels off-putting and weird in that again we are we are we are not we are not guiding the process we are not creating the laws we are not enforcing the laws like the structure itself is not created by black people Hmm.
0: and so so the does so like that space like being in that what led you in that path when did Mm -hmm. you say okay law school it is five years old (laughs) i was five
1: five. i was five so this was always an interesting question uh interviewing for law firms because they'd be like well why did you want to get into law well i have no idea when i was five years old um i don't know if you have one of these but my parents bought me like this little memory book it's like for every grade, you're like, who's your favorite teacher? Who's yep. your best friend? What's your favorite color? Mm. What do you want to be when you grow up? Right? And I said, president, lawyer, in that order. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to be president anymore. So mm. that's, that's like cross that off. But I knew as I got older, right, um, as I came into political consciousness, I saw Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. I saw Jennifer Granholm. I saw Dennis Archer. And I'm like, well, if I'm interested in politics, I need to be a lawyer first. All of all of the examples, local and national, for me was like, yeah, they're all lawyers. So I guess I got to be a lawyer to 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 run for office one day.
0: Mayor Kilpatrick, for most people. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was the like the kid logic <laughs> mm-hmm. that just that stuck with me, right? So I went into undergrad. I did poli sci, knowing mm-hmm. that I was going to apply for law school. So like, none of this was by accident. Like, I knew I was on this path. The path shifted. Which is why I'm no longer practicing law. But, but but at the time at the very least, I like I knew I would study poli sci, go to law school. Like I just knew I would I would work at a law firm for a certain period of time. I, I had mapped it out in my head. I'm like five to seven years. The goal for me is not to become partner, is to get this experience as a launch pad to something else. Um and I basically did exactly that. So
0: And what, what type of law?
1: So corporate and real estate, hmm. which is Interesting that you talk about the courtroom because I think I've stepped into a courtroom as as the representing lawyer maybe two or three
0: times in my life. I would imagine that is a <laughs> lot of mediation, arbitration, uh, paperwork. Uh, many things are, are 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 handled outside of that.
1: Well, mostly it's um mostly it's contract drafting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It's negotiation, mm-hmm. but a lot of contract a lot of contract drafting, a lot of you know transaction management so making sure that we're drafting the right documents that we're talking to the lenders that we're talking to the develop like the developers to like just making sure that everything is in order um a lot of paperwork but i love i love writing generally so contract drafting to me was was and still is a fun thing to do
0: and 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 even getting in that space as you talk about like the scarcity of us in that space oh yeah it's it's even it's, it's even worse. Yeah.
1: fewer and <laughs> ain't, fewer. Ain't none of us there. Yeah. Um, and a lot a lot of times, we do exactly what I did, right? Like a lot of us will be at a firm for really three to five years. By the time like you're a middle level associate, um, that's when people begin to to go on to other things. So even today, and this this recently, in the last few months, I was brainstorming with another lawyer friend who's also in the transactional law space. And we were trying to think of black real estate lawyers in Metro Detroit, um, because this particular lawyer can give work to other lawyers. So she was trying to think of like, who are the black lawyers? The list is so short.
0: I, um, I'm working with one now mm-hmm. in a family matter. Uh, I know of three others, but mm-hmm. leading up to this family matter, it was so weird because I was like, damn, every one of these, it's like y'all are introducing me to, I, I got more Chaldean uh, real estate attorneys. And I'm like, nah, we need a black person because yep. we need to be culturally, and, and this is big in where I come from. Mm-hmm. Cultural competency needs to make sense, yep. especially with, with fam. Because sometimes we're gonna say something and we need, we need a person, even if they're fair, we need you to cut in and say, look, I need this today, straight up, mm-hmm. square business. And then we understand. So we're not going through like two levels of communication, yep. two levels of connection, two levels of everything. And this real estate law space, the more that I, I found out through helping in family sell, sell property mm-hmm. and buy property. Boy, boy, the real estate law space. um, I was very ignorant. I was very ignorant and I consider myself pretty bright but but unless you've dealt with
1: if unless you've dealt with specifically that area of law like you just wouldn't know Uh right and 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 it's also the level of expertise right so like buying and selling property is one level yep um dealing with a larger development transaction right so dealing with the lenders dealing with all of their attorneys dealing with the like that's a different level right and then you get up to like Coding Indu- and inspection Coding inspections, but like industrial, mm-hmm. um, large infrastructure. Like, you keep getting more and more complex. And the higher up you go, th- that the levels of complexity, the le- the fewer and fewer of us you see.
0: You get zoning compliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get, uh, if you have a person, like, mixed-use dwellings and, and, and dealing with matters of, like, a person fulfilling whatever the obligation of their consideration of needs and stuff. And it's like, damn, this is like it it makes sense Mm -hmm. and then also like a lot of other stuff now as i'm learning from my ignorance it's like yep this should be notarized this should be that way but the reality of a lot of stuff in the city of detroit just due to lending practices in my opinion being very biased is it's a lot of wild wild west out here it is so many quick claim deeds (laughs)
1: Let me tell you. So that comes up that comes up in class. um, And I always have to, like, explain, explain to people you get no protection with a quick quick claim deed. Right. And yeah, I mean, it it is the wild, wild west out there.
0: And and just even cleaning a deed. Yep. Of of like uh, possibly workmen's liens that people may not even know. You know what I'm saying This person put some Janky windows in your house And it's like Psh, I ain't paying you The rest of that And now you got a Lean on your house You don't even know it.
1: Or I mean Federal tax liens And all kinds of Other judgments And claims Like people have no idea What's on their title Yes Like no idea
0: it, But even Even the access To the right attorney To even mm-hmm. um, You know Looking in Looking into your title Getting title work done mm-hmm. An attorney that knows How to do that And then also You still have the system Of you're still dealing with municipal government, so <laughs> sometimes uh, sometimes that can be a little bit
1: that could be a whole podcast to itself. Like Yes.
0: <laughs> so what we're talking about for everybody watching right now, we've definitely hit a turn mm-hmm. and we're talking real estate. And you guys need to pay attention. Don't get don't don't get drowsy or nothing. This is very important because so many people right now as as I'm pulling a pin out, things have shifted in this city from being such a, a a black home ownership stock to so many renters
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the standards of how people are keeping properties that are rented to it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then even the, the onus obligation and what you have as a renter, it, it's a tough position. Cause I mean, you can sit in, you know, you, you can sit in third district court, almost most days if you want to view most hearings and you'll see hearing after hearing mm-hmm. after hearing after hearing after hearing and none of this is ever going to represent the person that's the renter
1: now we do now have um access to attorneys for those who are um facing eviction facing eviction and so we know
0: that through the the city of detroit the the act of uh sugar law firm shout out mm-hmm. tanya um tanya but also uh mary sheffield uh, uh city council so sheffield tate uh, i think romero was heavy in this and letitia johnson were mm-hmm. heavy in this um but that's that's key but it, it, it's it, it's it's fighting this battle but that battle is for most people i don't know if they even know
1: i mean it's new so they, they yeah i mean they I'm, I'm interested to see how people will, how the institutions you just cited, right, the City of Detroit and Sugar Law Center and others are able to get that information out to people who need it when they need it.
0: And, and then for programs like that, and I, I'm not even trying to be a, a, a pessimistic person because I was telling <laughs> someone I'm I'm really very optimistic about a lot of things, even mm-hmm. in shifts, because I, I think, as they say, uh, yin and yang, um, times of crises present. more opportunities Mm -hmm. you don't want to go through crises but it creates opportunity points um funding for that program because these attorneys aren't working pro bono that's right that's going to be limited but when we think of right now the just the rental class the renting class of people in the city of detroit is so vast Mm -hmm. so abundant
1: so it's it's a good question will will there be ongoing funding you know, how many people will be able to access it? The quality of the attorneys, like who, who are the attorneys representing um, the renters who are seeking their counsel? Like they're, they're I still have tons of questions, but I also haven't really been able to do a deep dive into the legislation itself. So I'm also hopeful, um, again, knowing everyone that you just cited that, you know, that there will there will be some bumps as we go. But hopefully that this becomes something that's both robust and that can last because because it's always been needed.
0: So more from a general perspective Mm. as a city right now has transitioned from like an ownership class to a rental class. Mm -hmm. What impacts on quality of life does that have in most communities? Like what's the perspective? I mean, people are,
1: people are are, are more at risk, right? So, um, rents have begun to rise in, in some neighborhoods. And we know that we're still a city where, um, The level of poverty is higher than most other large cities in the united states um any even subtle changes in rental amounts can cause catastrophic impacts for families right so we're beginning to see that um and we're we're not seeing a shift in or a rise in people's incomes at the same at the same rate so although these things are happening slowly now um as we've seen in most we're we're in a housing crisis in every single city in the nation like no in no city can you rent a two-bedroom apartment on a minimum wage job which you used to be able to do right so like the affordability problem is not just a detroit problem it's a it's a nationwide problem so i mean we 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 don't have enough housing units so when you when you have supply as low as it currently is um you're going to have rental issues you're going to have um even purchasing homes we're seeing that the cost of homes in the city have risen dramatically in the past two to two to three years so i mean on both sides home ownership and rental prices are rising and in a cash-strapped city that's dangerous
0: so let's get into really what you do from my perspective mm-hmm. development yourself
1: mm-hmm. when
0: did you hit a turn and say i need to be in this space to be grounded what what was the catalyst from that
1: so most of the clients at the it, at the firms that I worked for, most of the clients did not look like us. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, we talked about like white men creating the structures, but most of the developers at the time were also white men. Um and I think I mean I was in my 20s when I start, first started practicing and prob- by the t- certainly by the time I was 30, it clicked for me, right? I'm in a 90% black and brown city. Yet almost all of our clients who are doing these larger developments are white. Like something, something in this ecosystem is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll I'll never forget. I was probably a fifth year and the only project that I can remember, at least, that had um, black investment in it was the Meyer Project at 8 Mile and Woodward. Mm -hmm. So I got a chance to work on that project. And... I don't I don't even remember at what level the the the, the black investors were investing. In. I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but one of one of them um he was also an attorney. He 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 just sort of made a side comment one day. Like we were walking through the Renaissance Center and he's like, "Listen, you don't want to be a, a lawyer your whole life. Like your goal should be to be the developer." Mm. And it wasn't a long conversation, but like mm. that comment that he made um just stuck with me. So, long story short, a few years later, um, I quit, and I started an organization called Building Community Value. So this is this is the nonprofit side, right? So I started an organization called Building Community Value, and essentially what we do is we teach real estate to to other Detroiters, like so folks who want to, you know, buy the house across the street or that small commercial property on the corridor. Like we teach people how to do that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I couldn't be facilitating a program without actually doing it myself. So I had seen it on the legal side and lawyers will tell you, they feel like a development is theirs just because they worked on it. So like when I, when I talk about the Meyer, I talk about it, like it was my development project, right. Or Broderick tower downtown. Um, but being a lawyer on a deal and being the developer on a deal are just night and day different. So I needed to get that experience myself. And, um, yeah, so soon, soon after starting the nonprofit, I also started a for-profit venture to also do real estate development myself. So both of those things sort of happened at the same time.
0: What was the first, so in, in, in twofold, mm-hmm. um, first let's go to who were the first people that entered in your class? Who, who was interested in that information?
1: So shout out to U of M. The class started before building community value started. So there was a there was a professor at the business school. Who essentially has been teaching real estate for 30 years mostly to i mean students at the business school so mostly white students right mm-hmm. um and for him he's like black detroiters you know he's a white professor black detroiters deserve to understand this information too so he got a free class at the u of m detroit center this is 2015. free class at the u of m detroit center he got some support from the school of social work to sort of manage the course and they put out an application to to black detroiters like we're going to have this class. Yeah. Um, 2016, I start my nonprofit. They reach out to me and they said, Hey, we think this training should live at your organization. Like every, everything that I was saying about BCV, they were like, this aligns. And we think, cause the professor didn't want to teach the class for the rest of his life. He's like, he wanted to seed an idea. He wanted to create the structure and then hand it off to a community partner. Mm-hmm. So I created the structure as a new community partner, and they were like, "Here's the baby. We hope it grows." Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, most most of the participants are residents of Detroit, Hamtramck or Highland Park, and most folks are Black or Brown.
0: Um, uh, what type of like, were were older, younger, people All over the map. families, single? No, nope,
1: so are you people y- looking
0: to make money? People like, look, I'm nope. trying to flip houses, as they say. It really,
1: <laughs> it really is across the board. Um, yeah. So our youngest folks are usually in their early twenties, mm. and the oldest are usually in their seventies. Wow! So like it really that, does. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. That's
0: a, that's a that's definitely uh, from like um, from like Duke Ellington <laughs> to to Babyface Ray. There you go. <laughs>
1: um, which which is a beautiful thing actually to see how people um, interact with one another and how mm-hmm. their life experiences show up in class, um, but. We certainly do have people who are very community focused, who are like, I'm in it because, you know, I've lived in this neighborhood for 30 years. I've seen it deteriorate. I want to bring it back. Like, there's certainly that perspective. Um, Usually, usually it's not people who are in it just for the money. Um, Oftentimes, there's there's a wealth building aspect, but it's for legacy. It's like yo, I got my five-year-old daughter, I wanna leave her something when she grows up. Like, usually that's the frame that people come into the class with. Um, but there is there is this tension, and I think it's, it's purposeful on our part, or who we allow into the course, but it's beautiful how, how it shows up. Like, there are people who are like, we we wanna keep rents affordable. Like, the reason that we're in the class is we wanna buy that house across the street, we wanna keep rents affordable, we want our neighbors to be able to afford the space. Mm-hmm. There are the other people who are like, I want a 10% return because I'm trying to build wealth, right? Um, the conversations that happen around those two different philosophies, actually, to the point earlier of diversity, everybody black, or almost everybody black in the class, but the different philosophies in actually... Background and in background and thought. background thought create a different, more robust conversation in class. Mm-hmm. Um, often what happens with the person who wants the affordability, though, is that they'll create... They'll do an economic analysis of the deal. Like we want people to, we don't want people to lose their money, yeah. right? What's happening now is that you can buy a property cheaply in Detroit, still, in certain neighborhoods, um, or you can get a land bank property cheaply. But once you're in it, you don't realize. People don't realize that it might cost sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars to bring the house back.
0: If if that, and then also for those watching, because Detroit is one of those places, especially for my foreign, my my people not from Detroit. It's like, you can buy a house for like $100 All right now. And I I have some feelings about that. Mm -hmm. And we we did a good podcast that T-Bar posted. Um, September Ingram was there. Uh, Attorney Anthony Adams was on that too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have some feelings about some of this stock. But you also have the elephant in the room of, you have large investment groups yep. that have bought damn, like neighborhoods mm-hmm. worth of homes and bought like massive crews worth of contractors mm-hmm. but and uh, occupies some of the best property management groups like they've commoditized the market to even buy a home in Detroit in certain ways, in my mm-hmm. opinion, from what I've seen and witnessed, even in my own neighborhood. Yep. Where, it, and it makes sense because, you know, supply and demand, it it meets, like, you know, if if I do roofs, and this one company's like, hey, you want to do six, 60 roofs, roofs, or do you want to do that one person, that one family's roof? <laughs> like, it ain't even a thought process. That's right. It's like, yep. I'm going to Okay, I'm not even going to Menards right now. I'm going directly to where Menards buys their shingles. Mm-hmm. and I'm like, look, I need, you know, five uh, shipping containers full of.
1: Because can I can I keep my crews busy yeah. for months? Yeah. Right. Because like if you if you're trying to doesn't matter if you're black white or other if yeah. you're if you're a contractor or yeah. a construction firm, your goal is to keep the work flowing. Yeah. Right. And to do the one off job here or there. Um. For them feels inefficient and you're not making as much money so when you have like these larger groups that are doing you know multiple homes at once it's like of course to them economically of course i'll do that right um for us however trying to rehab you know my own home or just like that one investment property
0: yeah
1: it's it's, it's hard to find um it's hard to find people
0: even if you have like four yeah And, and 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 how to how does that balance? So, so I, I bring that mm-hmm. because even if you're looking to get that return on investment for that person that does want to buy the, the quote unquote, I was reading an article. I want to say was it the free press about saying it was in the free press. And then I saw it on the news and I, it just stood out in my mind, like saying like, you know, housing prices are going up and you can still get a fixer upper, but fixer uppers are hard to find. And then what's defined as a fixer upper. And mm-hmm. like what you said, you Know it's the time value cost of money economic concept, too. <laughs> so, even if you know you, you have this house, it only needs twenty thousand dollars worth of repairs, mm-hmm. but due to the scarcity of contractors, especially licensed and bonded contractors that you may have gotten some of that lending for,
1: if you can get the lending,
0: if you can get lending, that's, that's
1: a different, we can, that's we can get there, uh, yeah. Caveat,
0: but we're going on, you got <laughs> lending. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. another trick bag of like, well, damn, I I got the lending, I got the space, I know the work that needs to be done, mm-hmm. but every contractor is like, okay, talk to me in 2023, I may have a spot in spring. That's right. And, and you're looking at the land bank notice of like, okay, you got to make these repairs or it may end up back in those roles. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's a tough spot for a lot of people.
1: And it's not just, it's a, it's a- terribly tough spot, and it's not just for you know the single family or duplex rehabber, yeah right if you're doing a small commercial building, it's the same problem yes, right um one will will construction crews do work in the neighborhoods of Detroit when they can do work on the big deals downtown um and you know if they do the work, will they charge you double than what it would have cost you know a decade ago five yeah. years ago um so no at at all levels we need more. Contractors in the city of Detroit, and we don't have the same pipeline that we used to have, right? Um, or we're we're, we're beginning to rebuild it slowly, right?
0: What do you think um, broke that pipeline? Is that is that the, you know what I'm saying? Is well, we close, we close.
1: No, we cl- we close our vocational schools. Mm. Um, so I graduated in 01 mm. um, and around that time, DPS closed a number of our vocational schools in the city of Detroit, and even even and even now talking to parents and young folks there's there's this i think i think it's i think it's more prevalent than it was 20 years ago where parents are like nah they're going to university or they're going to college like that's the goal versus you can make a hell of a lot of money being an electrician but that's not on the radar certainly not of the of the kid but of the parents either so like there's this whole conversation of what what is good employment that i think has also shifted for us so we we have not been building that 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 group of of young folks who can who can take on those roles as other people age out or move out,
0: and and when you have these projects, because you're mm-hmm. right, if you can get lending, great. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're you're going like from your perspective, straight cash.
1: Most people are doing cash deals for but
0: cash deals. Is so, and this is mm-hmm. where, as you say, it's like it costs more money to be poor. Mm-hmm. Period. Because yeah, credit to hell. Lending options here to hell mm-hmm. And even if everything is good They're gonna quantify Like based on uh, this is something This is a Kari Frazier thought process The appraisals of properties In the city of Detroit Due to the lack of diversity Of the actual people that do appraise
1: I think it's grossly, less than I think it's less than 2% are are black
0: Grossly mm-hmm. Grossly wrong To the point where I'm like After going through the process, I'm like, I may want to just look into being an appraiser just to just be a black guy that people know (laughs) that will appraise a property, especially when it's like I saw their process. I'm like, this is like we're paying this much and you don't even really know. You're looking at what was sold in my neighbor. You're looking at like a three block radius of houses sold. And I live in a community where we know how stuff is in Detroit. Mm -hmm. You 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 can live two blocks away from a, a half a million dollar home and uh, another home, two blocks away, may sell for thirty.
1: And a lot of times, I mean, technology is taking over that role more and more, more and more. So, in in fact, the appraiser is pulling in a lot of data. Like it's, it's it's not like it was thirty years ago. So, no, you're right. Like you, they they need to understand the communities in which they're working, and many of them do not.
0: Yeah, I, I every appraiser I looked at for a project went back to another family deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every one of them. I could not find an appraiser that was not uh, damn near like the closest one is like, yeah, I always work in Detroit, but I it's going to take me about 25 minutes to get down there. I'm like, damn. Mm-hmm. And you always work here? I'm like, this, this is the, you know, this is the Green Acres uh, appraiser specialist. <laughs> this is what everybody says I should go to. Mm-hmm. And I swear this guy lives... If, if he didn't live on the other side of hall road.
1: All right. I, I got a re- After, after the pocket, I got a recommendation for you.
0: <laughs> I got you, but, I, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It, it, and I know other people are dealing with this same. Mm-hmm. Prospect. So like, I know we're getting into the weeds, but on the flip side of you getting into your deals, what were some of your first deals getting in that space?
1: So I'm, I'm only really interested in commercial. Okay. So right now I have three projects that are happening pretty simultaneously. Um, Two, two on six mile and one in Corktown. Okay. Um and what's interesting is that and I and I think this is because of building community value, like folks look at me as as a housing expert. And yes, I know a lot of data about housing. Like I follow it deeply, but like my personal passion is as commercial. a developer is commercial. Okay. Um like when and, and this has been happening for, for a long time. Like when I drive up and down our corridors, like I I imagine what my parents saw when they got here, Hmm. right? Like six mile was bustling. (laughs) Um, Most of our corridors were right. And to think about what I've seen sort of stripped away in my lifetime and certainly what they've seen in their lifetime. It's like, where do we go now to get basic needs? Where do we go to for entertainment and for food? Like how far do we have to travel? And I know this is a car city, um, I'm probably one of those few, I, I, if we had real public transportation, I would give up my car in a, in a heartbeat, but mm-hmm. it's just like, can I walk to something? So I live near Wyoming and Six Mile, so near Marygrove. I'm like, can, what can I walk to besides the gas station, right? Now we have some things that are popping up on Six Mile, but it's just like, yeah, I know we hated, some the, the, the way that people talk about 20 minute neighborhoods throughout the United States, like um, in urban planning spaces, Uh, It's a little weird, but like the idea of being able to walk to amenities like everybody should be able to walk to basic things in their own communities. So that's what I'm trying to build. Like, that's what that's what makes me passionate. Um, and And I want it to look and feel like it was made for us. Um, I want people to step into spaces. Like, I'm excited. Like, there's a new restaurant that just opened, Petty Cash on Yeah. Like, I, I've seen pictures, and I can't wait to go into the space because the way that I... The, the pictures that I've seen, it feels like it was designed Look with me in mind. mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I want more spaces like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I go to restaurants in downtown in the Cass Corridor, and when I walk into some of those spaces, I'm like, I know the food's going to be good, but this atmosphere, the music... Yeah. Just the the, the the colors the materials like that are used in the design it, I'll, I'll never forget I, I work with one architect, black architect based in Detroit and the first the first project we started working on he put out like a hundred photos for me and my partner to go through hmm. and and he, he's, he's one of these like some architects are very like code thinkers and like math thinkers. And there are some architects who are like artists. Mm -hmm. And to me, he's almost like the artist guy. Right. So he put out a hundred photos and he wanted me and my partner just to go through and pick photos of what we wanted the space to feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was like, it could be color, it could be design, it could be smell, it could be just like whatever the photos like evoked for us. And we me and my partner separately were picking photos, and we put them up on the wall, and I looked at his and I looked at mine, and I'm like, all right, we picked the same, similar. Yeah. Like it looked like a black space, yeah. right? Like a sexy black space, and I'm just like, all right, mm-hmm. that's what we want to create. But um, you need black people in to the room create. to create it, because 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 mm-hmm. a white a white person or not a non black person can say that they want to welcome black people into their establishment, but will they know? Actually, shout out to Rosa and to Charity Dean, mm-hmm. who just created the coffee shop uh, on Grand River. Um, she and I have had this conversation about the nature of design and what it signals to your customers, right? Even the music. Like, your playlist means something. When I walk in, and if I hear Anita Baker, I'm like, I'm supposed to be here.
0: And, 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 and I, I, this kind of likens itself to some of the discussion that I was saying about, like, courtroom. Mm-hmm. Design has a lot. It's like, huge. It's design changes our behavioral
1: Mm -hmm. without us knowing it
0: exactly like it's a reason why the catholic you went to catholic school Mm -hmm. the catholic cathedrals have such high ceilings
1: yes there's no there's no utility to it yeah
0: a certain way that's right walking in a place with a 600 foot high ceiling Mm -hmm. it makes you feel like i'm so small let me like in courtrooms mm-hmm. have this feeling sometimes like the larger the room yeah. setting and things like, you know, jails for all of my friends that have spent time like like in, in social design of like most sales have a window that you can't see out of. You That's know, right. sun's coming in. Yeah. But you can't see out of it. Mm-hmm. Which psychologically does something to your mind Mm -hmm. of like, I know it's an outside that exists,
1: but I can't
0: even see it.
1: And when when you're talking to people about structural racism in terms of space, Mm. this is the hardest one of the hardest conversations. So um, the current. Chief Storyteller of the City of Detroit, Eric Thomas, wrote a piece. I don't know, a year or two ago, just about what it what it feels like to be black in certain spaces. And I've yeah. seen and I've seen a number of these pieces that have come out lately too. Um, when you are trying to describe to a white business owner why something feels bad to you as a black person being just being in a space, um, you can't quantify it, right? And if you can't quantify it, it's, it's hard for anybody else to buy into or to like really respect your opinion. Um, So, I mean, black development to me, and it's, it's, it's a very broad phrase, right? Like not every black person thinks the same way. Not everyone feels the same way in space, but having the conversation and having similar social cues, like you can have that conversation with a black business owner. And I really want people to start thinking about how you feel in space. Like when you walk into a space What's your body doing? Like, are your shoulders tense? Like, how are you feeling in that space? Because there really are some things happening in Detroit that, again, without us knowing it, impact us psychologically.
0: It's deep that you said that. Um, one of my big mentors uh, and a heck of a heck of a thinker, um, mm-hmm. Mama Net Gloria, uh, Doctor Gloria House, in mm. like, I want to say like the mid '80s, she wrote a piece. A book. It's it's not even published anymore. And she was like, if you can find that book, let me know <laughs> on specifically landscapes and their impact mm-hmm. on things. Because I know even colleges, it's a reason the big lawn in yep. front of the institution, mm-hmm. you know, it's a reason why when we go to schools like you, you look at a school like Interlocking or uh, Cranbrook, Mm -hmm. uh, the design of the campus versus a school, like shout out, you know, I'm a Northwestern guy, but (laughs) Northwestern (laughs) high school, but like, as you see the design of it, the concrete all around of it, it, it has a similar, you know, locked up kind of core (laughs) to it. And then you look at a Cranbrook and it's just like open with, you know, um, design bushes and trees and you know a lot of classes outside like damn do this even feel like school like what's going on here you know what i'm saying you know uh what's the other school ward off it does certain things like that Mm -hmm. when we think of the design of just the place itself yep, and looking a certain way does orient a certain certain behavior which as you said psychologically Some of these things orient other things because like even the littering, I I think it's a a certain, you know, we live in certain neighborhoods like even my block, like, you know, um, the illegal dumping that used to always happen. Now, since I've activated more of my space, put the tires out, put put uh, put plants and stuff, I'm not saying nobody will illegally dump at all. But it changes your orientation because it's right. like, damn, what's going on over here? Mm-hmm. This looks like. Let me go. I don't want them to go two blocks over and do it, but let me go two blocks over and do it because this don't seem. This looks like too the nice, place. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and, and eat all of these behavioral things mm-hmm. as people were saying, like blighted communities impact things, like you know the the house on my corner. Like, you know, we've blocked and I've paid for the barricade. The guy across the street paid to barricade it, but. Every probably maybe like twice a month, somebody's going in there and they need to squat and rest. Mm. But when they squat and rest and they leave out, they leave. They don't close back up. And now it creates a danger. That's right. In a certain way, like certain things like that impact our community in mm-hmm. certain ways. That, and I don't know psychologically what it may have those long term impacts on us, but also those places where we don't feel welcome. You know, uh, I think it has the same. Impact. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes, even my white friends hate when I say this, but like even I go into certain parking lots because mm-hmm. I know the char- cars that black folks going to drive. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, just a running joke. If I see, you know, if you're in the suburbs and you see a parking lot full of like a bunch of F 150s, it's like, I know the type of bar I'm <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you go in a parking lot and you see a bunch of Cadillacs and Benzes, it's like, I know the type of bar I'm mm-hmm. going into. <laughs> yep. you, you know what I'm saying? You know, it even that plays, you know, um a role in design and in and where things are at.
1: But what worries me, um, about the nature of of communities where we are we are losing or we have lost much of the beauty that was there. And again, a lot of that is structural. We can talk about foreclosure and the loss of homes, et cetera. But the, the loss of beauty, I was driving up Finkel, I don't know, a few days ago, and there were three kids walking down the street um, through a very deserted, blighted stretch of Finkel. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of my niece, who's pretty young as well, and I'm just thinking to myself, what, will they, what, what do they think they deserve? right if this is the, this is their life, like I don't know if they get out of their neighborhood, right, but like this is my thinking right if this if this is what they see every day, right and i and I know adults, young adults in their twenties, who, if they go into a nice restaurant, feel very uncomfortable. this is not for me, right, so I'm wondering, seeing these young kids, if they don't see beauty in their own communities, will they think they deserve beauty as adults, so I mean I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, but I th- I think this impacts us, right? Um, and, and I want these kids growing up now, like, this is my concern, right? So I've seen what we've lost mm-hmm. over my nearly 40 years now. And I, I want these new kids, these younger kids, to see all of the new stuff, like, the beauty that's being created for them, so that when they are my age, they're like, yeah, like, Detroit just like we just kept seeing stuff open all the time like there's these black entrepreneurs and developers who were just like opening businesses in our community like that's what I want them to see mm-hmm. so that they don't think they need to leave Detroit to succeed
0: so so when you say things like that that naturally triggers most people to say wow I got a project I I, I got a business mm-hmm. I want to meet Chase I want to be there how do you decide who to partner with for mm-hmm. the visions
1: so I think I think the the beautiful thing for me is that building community value allows me to do that. It's my day job, right? Like the development is actually like the side hustle. So BCV is the day job. So when we, you know, we have classes for real estate, um, we have office hours, etc. So when people are interested in understanding how this works, I'm able to provide a structure, right? It's like, hey, take this class. Hey, come to office hours. There's a structure to talk about those things. Um, now, I am not a i'm not a build institute right i'm not a tech town right like i am focused on the built environment not on like the business development entrepreneurship side Mm. um and that's not my specialty either right on the legal side yeah like i can help people when i was practicing i could help people start a business right i can get i can can get the entity set up i could do the operating agreement etc but even as a developer i don't want to operate the space right so people have been lately have been saying for the first six mile project they're like yeah chase's brewery i'm like "Uh uh-uh this is not my brewery like i built the building (laughs) and the brewery's the tenant right so i want people to get to know brian who runs the brewery right um i don't want to be an operator like that's never my that's never my goal it's not my expertise Mm -hmm. but i love talking about real estate and i can talk about it all day
0: how do you pick your tenants because that Mm -hmm. i mean being connected in the community and just just due to back to that i'm a Yep. Harking on that term scarcity, just the, the scarcity of us in spaces like that. Mm-hmm. Now I, I can only assume the pitches of like, "Hey, my my cousin got a got a got a African cotton candy." Uh, <laughs> we you we know what I'm
1: <laughs> I have a project that for that cousin, um, but <laughs> but but really, it is It's conversation, right? Like I'm in, I'm in conversation with people every single day, mm-hmm. right? So part of I don't know. It's not it's not just a skill. It's just sort of innate within me is to be a connector. Like I'm always connecting people like I'm, I'm, I'm meeting people all the time and I'm connecting people all the time. So when it comes time to figure out what's the group of tenants that could possibly be in a space, um, I already have like a list in my head. Right. Because I already know that a lot of people have told me, "Yo, I'm interested in X, Y, Z. It's like, OK, I can curate these certain things in the space and they and they work together so um what i really want to do and what i'm working towards is we don't have enough flexible retail space in the city of detroit right like if you there's there's a lot of spaces where you know someone's taking over a thousand square feet for you know let's say a a clothing store um when they really only needed like 300 square feet so they have the extra expense to try to get people in the door to pay the rent because they probably don't own the building because most people are renting even in the commercial space. Um, there there are other communities that have truly large, I mean, there's flea markets, there's other like retail markets that Detroit really doesn't have, which is crazy to me because this is the city where everyone has a side hustle, right? Everybody's selling t-shirts. Everybody like got something they sell in. Um, but we don't have places for that. Like you have to be an established business, you know, you have to go through a business incubator and you need to rent like a really big brick and mortar. That doesn't work for most people. So what I'm hoping is that we can get more retail spaces that are flexible, smaller spaces. So the people who, you know, they get off at five, from one job, and they want to sell from five to nine, they can have a space to do that. So that's the next project.
0: So conceptually, and I think projects like that can work with the right synergy.
1: That's right. Um, you know but again i don't want to be an operator so we mm-hmm. so i know that there are people in detroit you know who can who can operate those kinds of spaces mm-hmm. who are already doing that kind of work
0: i got you yeah i got you i would i would think of my my podcaster comes to mind the great jennifer crawford <laughs> i may have been thinking about jennifer and so yeah yeah i think of her immediately <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that exactly but it's, it's other people in that space too yeah because yeah you're right like um just what that is and, and and what's needed. I was in a new shop. Um, what is their brand? Plugged is the brand. And it's like on the corner of uh, Broadway. And it's basically next to where Birds on Broadway used to be. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. For, for um, kind of, I'm about to, it's like across the street from where the network used to be. But that <laughs> corner. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's it's a retail space, and like you say, like when I'm thinking, like yeah, more stuff could be done here. But how do you? What's the equity in that? Like in that project. Mm-hmm. So, and in, in, in that, I'm sure. So you're dealing with relationships that have already been cultivated, people that you've seen do what they do. Uh, if I, if I'm a person that has a brand new idea, how do I even approach it?
1: So in in that case, it really is. I mean, in the same way that there's there's building community value. There's capital impact partners. They have their equitable development initiative. All that's for real estate. I mean, there's the build institutes and others for like entrepreneurship. So that, that I mean, it really is those programs Um that really do offer the kind of support that, that businesses need to get started.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and then at that same capacity, just knowing for the average person that doesn't have the space, mm-hmm. how do they even judge what's fair rent commercial in, in the commercials
1: they need to talk either to a real estate broker or to a real estate lawyer like honestly like you need to be reaching out to professionals i have seen and this was mostly pro bono right like folks who have gone through motor city match mm-hmm. um i won't make commentary about the program but they've gone through motor city match you know mm-hmm. they then get linked with a, a property owner mm-hmm. property owner presents the lease and People don't always go through the process of talking to a broker or a lawyer about that lease. And I've seen some of these leases, which are horrendous, right? So it really is, if you're, if you're looking for space, if you really want to rent space, you have to have professionals who understand the market.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so going into that, even before you explore your business, mm-hmm. because I think that's oftentimes, even when it comes to personal rent, that's how people think. They think, you know, I make $4,000 a month. They charge me of rent that's cool because I still got $3,800 I can live with that which is like more like it's definitely like a linear way of thinking Mm -hmm. but it's not the business way of
1: thinking that's right and and to the same extent that we have people do a pro forma for real estate like you you need to have a detailed business plan if you're an entrepreneur opening a business right so yeah you want to understand how much that rent is but you also need to understand you know your material costs and all the other things that you need to, to run your Ut- business utilities
0: are included yeah in uh, yeah uh and then also because certain utilities probably you gonna need internet mm-hmm. uh but the, the capacity of just even you know sometimes stuff like that you know how long will it take to you know as um, here go another one uh the um, Man, my mind just went blank for a second. But he always speaking about white box spaces and what a white box space looks like. And mm. he just straight up said there is no such thing as a white box space in the city of Detroit. <laughs> 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 oh, man, this is going to kill me. Mr. simply casual is always saying that he's like, look, you just got to. Mr. Rufus Bartel would be like, there mm. is no white box space in Detroit. You're going to have to white box the space for whatever your business is, too. Because that's the functionality, like, when I think of operating the space. If yeah. you talk about operating the space, I've run two studio, one in Southfield, one uh, in Eastern Market before, like, my space and other spaces. Mm-hmm. Big learning curves. Rent was not so steep, so it was manageable. But even though rent wasn't was manageable, all the other things included yeah. of having an open space was tough. Mm -hmm. operating this house can be tough in where things go because it's a lot of other responsibility and liability that comes in operating a public space where the public will interface. That's right. Um, And and that's even getting the space ready for you. So, you know, how long do you think the average tenant is probably going to even have to wait to get that space ready?
1: It depends. To begin selling. It it depends on... It depends on a, a lot of factors, right? Like it depends on if your landlord has thought of those things ahead of time, right? Um, it depends on what's already included in the lease, like you said, right? If the, if the if the landlord has already thought about bringing internet to the building, bringing internet to the space, um, if utilities are included, like if it's all if it's gross rent, right? Everything's in the rent, then it's much easier, right? Um, but but to Rufus's point, right. That's not most spaces in Detroit. No. Um, so it's, it's super dependent on what what space you in that you land in, because some spaces will take a lot of work for a tenant to even get to open the door.
0: Which let's let's go into people's favorite want to business, and it's funny because mm-hmm. I'm from business school, so mm-hmm. they always say it's like everybody want to open a bar and a restaurant, and chances are it's gonna fail.
1: Which. 100% true, and those are the hardest businesses to open.
0: And I was going to get into <laughs> that because it still also involves a lot of inspections, yes. zoning, coding. You know, the the difference between your sink being here and here could not have your restaurant open and it also could possibly be a $45,000 problem.
1: And the health department will, they will tell you what needs to be fixed, and there will be no mercy. It will be like the sink needs to be five feet over there sorry you just have to fix it <laughs> um yeah we've had some, some yeah I mean, <laughs> some like experiences I mean,
0: I mean but we're, we're talking real here yeah yeah so now you're you you're paying you're talking to the tenant mm-hmm. i'm i'm paying you money i I'm, i told my i told my mama my grandma my uh my best friend from high school hey i'm open in september 30th
1: and you'll end up opening in March, you know. <laughs> no, that's this is real. There's always there's always going to be a delay. There's always going to be a delay. Um, on the developer side, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're, I mean, most of these bu- these buildings are in bad shape, right? So like you you have to bring them up to 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 code in the first place. Then you get a tenant. It's gonna it's, it's gonna take some time because by the time you get through, the business environment in the city of Detroit is extremely challenging mm-hmm. on the developer side on, on the entrepreneur side, just getting through all the processes to meet the requirements that the city puts in place. Mm. We have lost some of our inspectors in terms of capacity. There's been turnover. There's been some loss of institutional wisdom at the city. Um, so to get through some of these processes can be daunting. So even, even if you as the entrepreneur or are on top of everything like to actually make sure that you get the response that you need that you can keep that city staff member engaged that you can actually shepherd your request through the process um in any kind of timely manner like there's going to be a delay <laughs> mm-hmm. even if even if you have done everything right there will be a delay
0: it- and, and now as we talk about delay, I, I want to talk about some of those those deep wounds from some, some entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Out. One of the biggest deep wounds from a lot of people, this was kind of us. We didn't leave much at one of our spaces. We left the stage and we left some speakers because they were just so so hard to move out. And mm-hmm. It just was like, man, forget those speakers, forget the stage. Um, That happens often, too, especially in the restaurant business where whole kitchens just get left in properties that people don't own because
1: mm-hmm.
0: they need to leave a space
1: They, need, rent, they need,
0: rent goes up
1: yep they need to leave a space and again this is why you need to have a savvy real estate attorney right it's like what what kinds of fixtures become the property of the landlord and what kinds of fixtures can you take with you um and unless you've negotiated that up front <laughs> A lot of times, I mean, you will do a build out and I mean, this, this should be spelled out in the lease at the end of the lease term, what happens, what happens to everything in that space? Um, that's why people need not, not just any lawyer. And I have to tell my students this all the time. It, don't just get any lawyer who thinks they know how to do real estate. You will specifically want someone who only practices real estate law because <laughs> um, those are the kinds of things that you need to see in those documents.
0: Because it happens often, yeah, and it's sad that I've seen people put a restaurant's worth of equipment in a space that mm-hmm. they got to walk away from, and now they're trying to operate pop up style.
1: And they and, and and they probably took out a loan to to buy the equipment in the first place, right? So like, the loss of capital and all of that is real. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's very commonplace too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's that that's such a tragedy. So how do you even? Like, is some of this? I mean, I guess you know you got personal and you got business. Can some of this stuff shift? To, like, you know, are are you looking for a tenant to? Okay, if you are a tenant, are you looking for a landlord? You can have a good relationship, a good rapport. Like, definitely, you still well, want your your lawyer.
1: Like. So, the the good relationship and rapport are, are important for a number of reasons, right? Like, you want your landlord to be responsive. <laughs> like, if something goes wrong in the building, you want your landlord to be responsive. So, that good relationship is important. But having a clear understanding is the most important thing, whether whether it's a good landlord or not. Having that document that clearly spells everything out. Like, a, a, a good commercial lease is at least 30 or 40 pages, honestly. Hmm. They're painful to draft.
0: Mm-hmm
1: but i mean they really do spell out everything um who's paying for utilities, who's paying for taxes, who's paying for reta- repairs, what fixtures are whose, um who's paying fees and fines to the city, um everything. Everything is spelled out. And a lot of times people are signing 10-page leases and that's it, right? So when the problem happens, there's no clear understanding between them and the landlord. It's better to be able to say, like, on page 47, you know, section 23C4, like, it says, I get to take this with me. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So. And, and, and then for, for people that are interested, when do you, for a person being, I guess, you know, being an entrepreneur, you're always too ambitious. Mm-hmm. When would you say a business is ready to make that jump and move to a commercial space?
1: Well, again, it depends on, you know, what kind of commercial space. There's some spaces that are flexible right where you again are able to do you know it depends on what you're selling um, or what service you provide but where you're in there with other entrepreneurs mm-hmm. um which i think is i think people should start in flexible spaces where there's a low barrier to entry to test the idea to test the product to test whether it even makes sense if there's a demand for what you're selling before you get to the point where you're actually getting your own brick and mortar by yourself because you should have already proven your idea to yourself right and if you have investors or lenders family friends you know who have put money into the business you need to know that there's a client base you need to know that your service or product is wanted before you make that real big leap to say i'm going to get into a three to five year lease for my own space like you really need to have proven that concept first
0: definitely so yeah man it's you've you dropped so much game and I'm going to have to get you back. Because <laughs> All right. I, 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 Happy to show so up anytime. more questions I have <laughs> in reference to this. I know we, 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 we spoke on homes and definitely went in commercial. To me, they're definitely different, but they're interrelated mm-hmm. when we think about that. Now, from the commercial space, you said that it's almost, because I know more so from the home side, but commercial buildings are being brought up in mass groups by property investment companies as well?
1: Not not, not, like in, homes. not like homes not yeah. like homes um a lot a lot of the ownership of commercial space, in fact is legacy right yeah. there have been people who or families who have moved out decades ago but who retain ownership of commercial space in Detroit yeah. and have just let the the spaces like deteriorate yeah. when we when i walked into so it's 7400 West McNichols 6 mile but 7400 West McNichols when we walked into the building I mean, everything you could imagine, right? The roof was caving in, water, damage everywhere. There was asbestos in the building, dumping, like everything. And I'm just like, so this owner left this vacant for a decade plus. Um, Everyone who has touched it since, because we we bought it from a bank. Mm -hmm. Everyone overpaid for it. So we had to overpay for it. But just like, that's what people want. People are waiting for their cash out. They're like, well, we've held on to this for 10, 20 years. Now that X neighborhood is coming back, we're trying to get this for like we're trying to sell it for two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars when it's only worth twenty. Right? Um, we almost had to rebuild that building, honestly. Like we replaced much that of the back was. facade, the the front facade, the roof, the roof joists. like we replaced everything. Um, and that's most of the buildings in the city. And what's what's more is that you can't just go to you can't just go to a bank. How to explain this. So you can't go to a bank for the cost of construction and then believe that your building will be worth what you put into it, right? You put in a million, it's only going to be worth 700000 You know, you put in three, it's only going to be worth two, right? So we're automatically underwater, which is why people are up in arms about Dan Gilbert won that $60 million tax abatement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's not talk about Gilbert. If you're doing development in the neighborhoods, Every single building has a tax abatement, mm-hmm. right? Every new shiny building that's opening has a tax abatement because you cannot make the numbers work without abatements, you know, strategic neighborhood subsidies. Um, if you're doing housing from Mishta, if you're doing just commercial from the MEDC, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, every, there's so much subsidy going into all these projects to make them work. So we put in $3 million. Mm-hmm. The building is not worth $3 million. When we are done... So we hand the keys to the tenants in a month. When we hand the keys to the tenants, we have put in three million, and an appraiser is going to come in and say it's not worth that. Yeah, that's every single commercial building on most of our corridors, right? So we don't have enough subsidy to even bring these buildings back. Like there's a limited amount, so it's 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 a struggle given the nature of the buildings, given the capital that's available. Um, it is it is it is extremely difficult to actually make these commercial buildings work
0: it's it's unique that you speak to that because i had a uh almost a cousin that old enough he was like an uncle that was really into the real estate
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and i always looked at real estate more as a um it's like a long-term game yeah i always thought real estate is like 15 20 25 year type thing mm-hmm. the one the people that i've seen in my mind have the most success with it really these are like almost like 25 years you're gonna be successful at whatever you do you know what i'm saying (laughs) but especially with real estate Mm -hmm. it's not a a quick flip and that's what was so unique around that time of 2008 2006 2007 like i was seeing people my age like yeah i'm flipping houses now and i'm like where you know what i'm saying and now i'm seeing sort of that kind of come back again where i'm like I don't know what's going to happen, but I know interest rates will rise, which they have. Mm-hmm. Now, and this is going to impact, you know, how homes are being bought. Well,
1: it's a cycle. Right. And yeah. no one no one can think that real estate, really any asset, but real estate especially, will keep going up yeah. in value in perpetuity like forever. It just that's not how economics works. Right. So we, we always hit the cycle. And. And even sophisticated real estate investors seem to have amnesia because (laughs) people start making really, really crazy decisions at the top of the market for some reason. Um, but the market will always self-correct or crash. Mm. We are in the self correction, right? So interest rates are going up. I mean, we, we will start to see a lot of this, you know, these institutional investors who are, who are trying to buy up as much cheap property as possible. Um, these skyrocketing home prices that we've seen, there's going to be an adjustment, right? As as the economy shifts, so I mean we're in this, we're, we're the market sort of reached a peak and we're we're beginning to come down.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, as you look at some of these institutional investors mm-hmm. specifically in homes, I definitely just want your opinion on it. How did how do we fix that? How do how and then and I guess I shouldn't even say how do we fix that. Whose role is it to advocate for that family that 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 single home buyer, you know the 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 person that wants to buy one house from the land bank authority, get it fixed up. Like, whose role is that? Is is that a is that a government thing? It is. Is that a community thing? Is that a businesses and real estate thing? Like, who the
1: community is? is doing it, right? The community is. We have the advocates in the community, right? If you look at community development organizations. Right. So I won't even name them, but I mean, we have CDOs throughout the city, some that have been around forever, some that are newer, but they are advocating for black Detroit homebuyers in neighborhoods to have access to the single family starter home. Right. The land bank. Their their goal is not their goal is inventory management. And what I mean by that is that they have so many homes still. I think they have about 17,000 now, which is down from some crazy amount that they had before. 17,000 homes. Um, The interim director, who has now become the director, even even was quoted in either the free press or the news as saying, we don't have enough capital as the land bank, as an institution, to manage all of these properties long-term, right? The goal is to get them off of the books. So what that means is... Quick sales, like they need to get the inventory down. That is not the strategy for first-time home buyers or you know low-income home buyers in the city of Detroit. Like that's not the strategy that works for most people. Um, and when you have community advocates who are trying to create new structures to get to get those land bank homes and rehab them and get the financing and get a home buyer in it, um, the land bank is not always the easiest partner. So, mm. it's at the community level the advocacy is already there. It's a governmental response that we need to see. And and honestly, this current administration has not been focused on single family housing, right? We have a lot of affordable housing that's been ex- was set to expire. So, for those it when when housing receives subsidy from the federal government, you have to keep it affordable for a certain period of time. That was expiring for like ten thousand units in the city of Detroit. Okay. So Mayor let Duggan, me,
0: let me explain some. Let me go a little bit sure, deeper. Sure, sure, The developer won't speak. So <laughs> let me break this down for you guys. All right, <laughs> and it's it's a classic back and forth. I remember um, Andrea Isom. Well, no, 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 no. It wasn't Andrea Isom. It was um, uh oh, man, because uh, she she represents the mayor, but she used to be on television and she was speaking to this challenge. Mm -hmm. So, But basically, so you all understand how government subsidies work. And this is why I also argue to a lot of my friends that as much as people talk about America's based on capitalism, it is not straight capitalism it's in not. America because government subsidies really create welfare institutions for, as far as I'm concerned, corporations. Now, as Chase just presented, some of these subsidy-based programs definitely empower communities, but some of them definitely deprive communities, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, i.e., NFL stadiums or something. You know what I'm saying? So... Uh, developers at, at certain points in time, especially like when we think of what happened in New York City at one point in time, when things hit, uh, New York City went bankrupt at one point in time, Mayor Koch, uh, Gerald uh, Ford was like, I ain't giving New York no money. You know, that was a reality in New York. So things will happen as for developers. It's like, okay, well, we can give you some subsidies, meaning that we're going to, you're going to pay less money uh, pay less in taxes you're gonna so you're gonna pay less in taxes We're gonna basically cover some of these costs like New York City or bond this out and and Give you some money over over time, but in exchange you're gonna allow Of your hundred unit building 50 of them will be affordable or low-income housing So mm-hmm. those 50 that'll be low-income housing Technically because it's mixed-use housing is like okay, You're going to keep this property up to par and this will be a 30 year agreement. So for 30 years or 20 years, I'm just saying 30, you're going to keep this in low income, affordable housing units. So this is kind of where people say, oh, man, you got one of them rent control apartments in New York or this city or that city. (laughs) Detroit had many of them. A timetable is ticking on many of those properties.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Chase just presented 10,000 of those units in Detroit in Detroit mm-hmm. are going off those roads so what happens when things go off those rolls is a couple of things start happening one closer to those things going off the roads you'll see these properties that probably have not had a, a, a lick of paint <laughs> in them in 20 years <laughs> these properties will start getting paint repaving parking lots because just the whole interest of knowing that you can maximize the value of where these tenants will stay is about to exponentially go up in a year or two. Now you can refinance. You you can get lending against what your property is if you're the person that owns that property or wants to sell that property. Basically, you took money from the government to assist the city or the people, citizens of the land or under the government for, and now that time transitions, and now this is just a for-profit project. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big key things, and man, this is really um, Alexis Wiley. That's who it was. Got it. Yep. Alexis Wiley, that was on the Channel 2 News, but now works in the, uh, was working with Mayor Duggan at the time, gave a presentation on like, yeah, it was this property right there at the corner of what's crazy is right behind where U of M <laughs> Detroit's office was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the name of that property project, but it was just even known as a project where this was definitely ousting out so many of the people that couldn't afford to live there. And the property group was, Uh, You know, it it was negotiated where certain tenants would be able to say and certain tenants wouldn't be able to say. And I remember Alexis stood up and said, you know, we're still going to work with this developer, but now they know how to do business with the city. And I was like, how did this person even (laughs) in the room (laughs) still? You know what I'm saying? They were about Mm -hmm. to kick out, like, I want to say maybe about 120 seniors, you know, just like something gross and grotesque. Um, So I'm giving that to the people playing so you recognize mm-hmm. the way that some of these balances and deals happen. So as these ten thousand units now transition for basically market rate, what happens to those ten thousand
1: renters? So 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 here's where I can be super critical of the of the administration often, but this they have they have done work in this space. So they've they made it a priority. To preserve those ten thousand units, mm-hmm. right? So this is the juxtaposition between, you know, what's happening in the single family space versus these multi-unit dwellings, these apartment buildings. They wanted to keep as many of those affordable units as possible, so they did negotiate with some of the landlords, etc. To date, they've probably maintained about six to seven thousand of the ten, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a pretty good track record. That is. The city doesn't have, and that's a that's a clear plan that the city put in place you can google it it's been in place for years like they talk about it alexis was, was on tv talking right like this is something that the city talks about when you ask them what their single family plan is there is no coherent plan mm-hmm. right and there has not been so that's the difference it is the majority of housing in the city of detroit it's over 75 percent of our housing is single family but we don't have a coherent plan for it so when you say whose role is it to to advocate for you know the single family home buyer? It is the government but our current government doesn't have a clear coherent plan for the majority of our housing type it's absurd mm. it's absurd I,
0: what would a plan like that look like
1: so all we have subsidy right we just got 800 million over 800 million dollars in arpa funding right yeah like we have subsidy available to us that we are not applying at the scale that we need right so i'll give you an example um the $250 million bond, you know, proposal in that passed two years ago, give or take. Yep. Um, so we're demolishing 8,000 homes. We are basically boarding up another 8,000. So we're patching roofs, we're securing doors, and we're getting trash out. Like, mm-hmm. that's what that money is used for. It's not to rehab the home, right? It's to stabilize it in the hopes that, again... The land bank can sell it and it get it off their books. It. Exactly, like it's like
0: kicking the can on possible what would happen. But then the person that buys that property, it could be like a, um, you know, it's like what's that, Storage Wars or something? Because it could be they <laughs> could be walking in a place like when you walk in your building. Yeah, it's like they boarded it up, now I open it up, and oh man, it's a whole tree growing in my house, it,
1: it, which is a thing that could actually happen in Detroit. Um, so, so, so that's. That's one of the strategies, right? Like, let's just board it up and hope that someone else can pay for the rehab Mm -hmm. instead of using the dollars that we have for those infrastructure fixes. So, we we are putting money towards housing, but it's apartment buildings. It's multi-unit dwellings. It's not to the one to four units. Um, So, what would a plan like that look? It would be shifting some of the dollars that we're using to the actual property type that exists for the majority of Detroiters and the majority of neighborhoods.
0: And, and, okay... I'm I'm going to stop right here because I'll be talking all day because you you definitely got my juices going on these processes. So, all right. Classic Detroit is different class questions. Mm -hmm. And and, and before we even get there, if people want to get in contact with you, people want to go through the class, how do they reach out?
1: Yep. So um, BCV, so building community value, bcvdetroit.org. That's the website. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me in particular, chase at bcvdetroit.org. There we go. Yeah.
0: All right, so now our classic question is mm-hmm. um, Your very first car, year making model, what year did you get it?
1: <laughs> so, 96 Chrysler Cirrus Green. Okay. And I got it in 2000. 2000 yep. Yeah.
0: Okay, where's the first place you went when you got it?
1: And I don't know. Probably to work. Um, because I was working at Mister Allen's.
0: Okay, you had a job at Mister Allen's. Which one? At Redford. So oh, the, the the big Mister Allen's. Yeah, you were yeah. like on the showroom floor of Mister Allen's. Right?
1: And I and I did decently too with commission. I,
0: I can imagine people. You you probably sold every color of Air Force One. Every every color you could think of. Man, listen.
1: The the, the 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 good day was when somebody came in and was like bought like six boxes of white Air Force One. It's just like, and that used to happen. I'm just like I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do with these, but all right. I just made my commission for today. All right.
0: I'm going I'm I'm to take my Detroit black card, and I'm going to say this. And I told this to Des. So if Des, you sometimes watch and listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you to listen to this. That is a poorly designed shoe. <laughs> as cool as they are, it's like as cool as they are, that is a poorly designed shoe because it's like as cool as it is to like you know like Air Force One's like you know fresh pair mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying Detroit fireworks you walking <laughs> but you know it's like you gotta walk flat footed or they gonna crease mm-hmm. you know and their dads would be like well you know they got these crease guards and you can buy it's like I gotta buy accessories just to wear a shoe
1: that's Ooh, how they get you
0: <laughs> but it, but it's still I, I want to say Air Force probably Air Force Ones may have been like uh, especially in that era you said 2000 yep. oh my god that
1: like, was it that was the shoe
0: yeah. Nike, Detroit had to probably sold more Air Force Ones per capita than <laughs> probably than any other city mm-hmm. I would love to see the record to, like from like 99 to like 2003 because yeah you're right buying six is like this is just my summer stock
1: that's it yep
0: <laughs> my summer will stop let me get six <laughs> eleven and a half because it's like i know i'm gonna be at a party' i gonna spill barbecue sauce on it and i'm gonna be like it that's ruined. it that's it <laughs> all right so the second question mm-hmm. uh you're the dj after the fireworks okay what were jefferson you get to play three songs what songs you playing
1: man <laughs> um what am i gonna play? You're going to have me stuck on this one. Can I name artists or do I have to name the song?
0: You can name the artist, and then I may give you
1: a song. Oh, man. All right. So I like the vibe of new new school musicians who have, like, throwback music. So, like, Mm -hmm. Bruno Mars, like, Supersonic. Okay. So one of their newer jams. Um, Probably something old school. You heard me talk about it, Anita, earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then... Man, I feel like an old soul. Probably something by the Isley Brothers.
0: Okay. So there we go. So, so it's all
1: kind of like old school so stuff. like
0: old school feel. Yeah. I'm with it. I'm with it. Yeah. So I would say you said Bruno Mars... I guess 24-karat Magic would be the song I would pick from him. All right, all right. And then you said Anita. We want to get something upbeat. like um, That
1: might be hard with Anita because... She doesn't I, have I, many I, I, of yeah, them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, what's that? Uh, 365 Days of the Year. The same Old Love would mm-hmm. probably be that. And then you said The Isleys, right? Yep. Oh, that's Fight the Power. So there we cool. go. Look at
1: that. Uh, I, need, I needed to insist on that, but there we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, uh, but yeah, the Isley's got such a catalog. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, and last, you could rename Woodward after 1D Trader. Who would it be and why? Comey Young. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's that's that's, that's easy. And, and for me, it's not, it's not necessarily what he did politically, even though I think that's super important, but he inspired culturally a whole generation. Like the way that I hear elders talk about him and what he was able to do to spark their imagination of what black people could do and what they could be. Mm -hmm. Like, again, the politics was important, but that the cultural shift that he was able to create was enduring. So Woodward Avenue becomes... I don't know. Coleman and Young Avenue.
0: <laughs> That's what's up. Thank yeah. you so much. This was fun. I'm going to yeah, definitely get you back because there's more questions as development is key in our city. Yep. Uh, Happy to come it's back. It's happening, you know, uh, every every place you look up, you know, you're, you're seeing the different crews and homes and definitely in buildings. Yep not a lot of commercial development inside our neighborhoods
1: as you said mm-hmm.
0: so that is
1: but more um, than we've seen in decades yeah. oh so, yeah.
0: certainly yeah. certainly and it's i tip my hat to you being a young brother in that space because lord knows i know it ain't a lot of us in there. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much thank you peace detroit is different is where you get information artistry history music and even comedy detroit is different a home for the culture
1: of detroit Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.